This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, and Guy Hammond of Strength in Weakness Ministries hosted a track called Cultural Issues and Disciple Making. Here's today's track session from Strength in Weakness Ministries. Progressive Christianity riding the postmodern wave. The point I'm making is a point I think you already understand, that culture affects us, it creeps into the church, and if we're not intentional and aware of it, that will basically affect our theology and our practices. What I don't assume you know is a tight definition of postmodern. Would anyone like to stand and give a definition in five words or less? I mean, no, I, I, I know you can do it. Some can do it, but we need to explain what modernism is and then also what postmodernism is. I've, it's a very uh, visual presentation, and we're going to, after, after we lead in, I'll explain five facets of postmodernism. What is it? For example, the first is that there's no truth, but there are truths. Many truths, but no truth. We'll look at five facets, and then I'll give four strategies for how, as Christians, we need to be wise, uh, how to interact. And it's not just with millennials. It's not just young people. Postmodernism affects every generation. You just may be more aware of it uh, with people who are younger than you. And then after that, we'll have time for questions. If you came in late and didn't get your free book, you can come and get that after. And uh, yes, that's the title. That is the true title. There's no uh, full screen or... I'm Douglas Jacoby. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. I became a Christian 40 years and a few days ago during my first semester at Duke University my first university, and apologetics made a huge difference for me, which, and I actually started reading that even before I became a Christian. I'm grateful to be here um, at this forum. I'm grateful for my connection with Bobby, uh, not only Bobby Harrington, but with many people in the Christian churches. Okay, so like you, I'm looking up here, so let me just go to the side. That's the the approach we'll take, beginning with modernism and postmodernism. Postmodernism is often thought of as a philosophy, but typically philosophies would hang together a bit more, be a little bit more coherent. It's also called a movement, a methodology. You could even call it a mood. For the purpose of this class, we'll just call it a wave. It's something that has been uh, in motion for quite a while now, and to to understand it, we're going to have to actually go back to the 19th century. Whether you've ever heard of postmodernism or not, or could define it, uh, in a sense is irrelevant as to its truth. I mean, someone may say, I don't, I don't know anything about God, I've never met a Christian. That doesn't have implications for whether there is a God. I mean, God exists independently of whether we know. Ideas and ideologies um, affect us all. A little bug like that, something nasty growing in you. You may be totally unaware of it. Of course, they tell us that a certain percentage of us in this chapel do have something nasty growing in us. Ooh, that's a terribly negative way to to kind of begin here. (laughs) But 
it can be there and affecting you even though you don't know how to spell it because maybe it's some fancy word. Ideas affect us all whether we understand them or not. Postmodernism is a dominant philosophy of our age. I know it's a wave, a mood, a methodology, a movement. It's a dominant uh, philosophy in the universities. It's a dominant philosophy in churches, particularly uh, more liberal churches. It's a dominant philosophy in the arts, even in seminaries. Now, I studied in, I guess I studied in four seminaries. And the aspects of postmodernism that really jolted me, these go way back. I mean, this is, this is going back to the 70s and the 80s. For example, uh, when I was doing my doctorate, often the prayer, the opening prayer would be, Dear Mother, Father, please bless us, help us to follow you as the Queen, King of Heaven. I mean, things like that. This is a long time ago. It's not new. It's, you know, like with the same-sex revolution, this is not new. This has been going on since the 60s and going on with a passion since the 70s. Uh, it's a dominant philosophy of our age, but it is a reaction to something, as many movements are and not a few church groups. In the 19th century, there was a tremendous feeling that uh, science is amazing and technology is going to change our lives forever. The, the whole world, the whole universe is like a machine. And if we could simply understand where the various parts of the machine are and what motion they're in, we could predict the future. If we could somehow know where every atom was, if we could get a, like a photograph of where everything is right now, we could extend it and we could, we could figure out everything. This thought, uh, that's an equation, this thought is that science is savior, technology improves life. Our problem is not, certainly not sin, it's ignorance. And if we can bring the benefits of Western culture, and if we can bring education to all the world and all the benighted corners of every country, then the goodness of human nature will win out, and it's going to be wonderful. And among uh, many Christians in the 19th century, the thought was, Jesus will return once we've created this millennial paradise on earth, and we're going to do that by education and technology and missions work. Uh, So many believe that in the 19th century. And so you have utopian political programs. See, it's very optimistic. Wow, let's just abolish uh, private property, or let's just give it all to the government, and things will work out, right? So all these ideas, uh, many of which had never been tested before. And uh, this will sound phenomenally arrogant to us, but it was a common sentiment in the 19th century that we've learned nearly everything there is to learn. I mean, how much more can, can we find out? And we have telescopes now. Now we know that, uh, you know, the stars are really far away. We have microscopes and, you know, people are talking about atoms. They don't know that atoms are made up of, of uh, protons, and electrons, neutrons, and, and those are made up of other things. They, they didn't know. But progress, this incredibly optimistic sense of progress characterized the 19th century. Then you get into 20th century, and with the, uh, the physicists and, and quantum mechanics and Einstein, we realize the earth, the world is not what we thought it was. Space and time can bend. 
Light is not a wave. It's not a particle. Maybe it's a particle wave. Uh, we realized that it was far more complicated than we ever realized. I, I'm so sorry for... I know you can't see any of these. Uh, terrible, uh, terrible wars took place very quickly, like the war to end all war, which, which didn't. You have concentration camps. Uh, you've got, of course, the Holocaust, but multiple Holocausts. You have people like Hitler and Stalin who, who try to take over the world. They have their ideology, and their ideology, of course, is very wrong, but it, it affected everyone, uh, whether it's the fascism of of the National Socialists or communism, you know, Stalinist communism. So now we're up to the mid-century, the mid-20th century. And you know it's not just Europe, it's also Asia. And we have world war. And many of us in the room had parents or grandparents who were, who were involved in that. And war continues even today. It hasn't stopped. Uh, people put tremendous confidence in ideas, except now we have less excuse. Because many of these ideas have already been tested. So many people have died in the various genocides. I was in Rwanda uh, last year standing over, I guess, where a quarter million people are buried from their genocide, which was actually very recently in human history. I've been to Cambodia. I've been to actually a lot of genocide sites. And we look at the 20th century, the victims of ideologically atheist regimes number more than 200 million. I mean, victims, I don't mean like they were scarred and they have baggage. I mean, they were killed. They died. And this, so this is what happens when ideas we may or may not understand uh, are, are pushed by dictators. It can affect the entire world. And then we come closer to our time. I know it's very fuzzy, but can you recognize what that is? I mean... This is, this is now. Terrorism is alive. And it's not just foreign terrorists, it's even domestic. Here, I'm thinking of Texas just a few days ago. We're excellent at building walls. Here's the wall. Every time I go to Israel, you see this wall separating the Palestinians from the Israelis. Uh, it's heartbreaking. This picture, if you can make it out, that's Joseph and Mary, who's very pregnant, and they're on the way to Bethlehem. Uh, but today you couldn't do that. You'd have to go through a checkpoint. And they will probably be turned back. So it's the 19th century promised this utopia. The 20th century did not deliver. Disillusionment sets in. People turn to drugs, to pleasure, to all kinds of things uh, in order uh, to, to have a sense of meaning in life. I'm so sorry. You're going to have to help me. Okay. Okay, quick review. <laughs> so this is the idea. So modernism is the thought that, that science and technology will save us. Everything's going to be wonderful. Postmodernism is saying, forget that. That hasn't worked. If we're going to enjoy life, if we're going to find meaning, we have to get it on our own. And in this headlong pursuit for pleasure and, and, and our rights, right, the self... The family's been redefined. We have plenty of food, but starvation is alive and well. It's not like humans were so good. Governments couldn't be trusted, not just individuals. We have poverty. We have so many people trying desperately to leave their countries. And those who should be giving 
great encouragement, often it's the church, have let, have let people down, have given Christianity a bad name. We have human trafficking. There's depression and suicide, and there's always that. We wonder, could it happen? And so I guess what I'm saying is that this postmodern superstition, this reluctance to give a heart to the authorities, to their teachers, to their professors, it makes sense. It makes sense because the promise was not fulfilled. And so today, under suspicion, uh, not just people, uh, but texts, uh, books, history itself, and of all the texts, religious texts are most suspect, especially the Bible. And I'm going to say that postmodernism is affecting your own local church, whether you know it or not. This is in the air we breathe. It's in the water that we drink. So let's look at a few facets of postmodernism. What is this? And I hope this will stimulate. Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, it's not truth, it's truths. We hear this all the time. You know, people say it's true for me, but not for you, or that's your truth. Okay, you would never cheat on your wife, but that's you. I mean, I'm in a different world. I have different truths. Uh, when I went to Harvard, I did my um, master's in theology, and the indoctrination, this was 1980, is that there's not one Christianity historically. It started out as many Christianities, and they were all suppressed, and the Catholics and the Orthodox kind of triumphed, but actually there were many Christianities. It's a popular idea today. Uh, it's wrong. It doesn't match with history. There is, in fact, I mean, these many Christianities with their extra Gospels and so forth, these things are written one, two, three, up to 600 years after the New Testament is written. Something I heard all the time in evangelism, I would be studying the Bible with somebody, a seeker. And they'd say, well, Doug, that's just your interpretation. I used to think what they were saying was that I've, I've misread the text or my logic is flawed. I think they actually meant something different. It's like, well, that's your interpretation. I have my interpretation. Everyone has his interpretation. They, they weren't trying to engage logically. They were simply saying, well, I mean, okay, who cares? <laughs> that's what you think. This is what I think. You know, is in the marketplace of ideas, all are equal somehow. A, a false democracy of ideas. Have you seen this? Maybe on the car or truck that you were following on the road? And you can see, see the images pointing to different movements and world religions. Or you have the idea that every, every path up the mountain will take us to the top. All roads lead to God. You know, it's really not true. Even climbing a mountain, there are usually not so many ways you can go up. But this is a common myth today. If there's a God and we've made an effort, surely all roads would find him. We need to read between the lines what's called intertextuality. History is written by the winners. Think of it this way. U.S. history. Now, I did my first degree in history because I had to major in something, and I wanted to get out of Duke in a certain amount of time. I didn't, I didn't love history. Now I love history. Now I love history. Okay, what we're being told is that you can't trust history because there's bias. Well, of course everyone has a perspective. 
But where does this go if you become radically skeptical? You're, you're saying you can't really know anything. We don't really know anything that happened. So imagine what U.S. history would look like if it had been written from the viewpoint of the Africans or the Indians. All right, that'd be a very different story. The Canaanites did not write the book of Joshua. I mean, to, to put it today, like we were just minding our business and these guys, we'd heard of them coming from Egypt. They had problems with the government there and they're coming in and taking our land and our jobs and we're just minding our business. And, you know, if this history was published today, they probably wouldn't tell you that the Canaanites were very busy burning their firstborn children, having sex with animals, practicing incest, murder, theft, and actually squatting on Israel's land promised to her by God. The Canaanites, not in the time of Abraham, but in the time of Joshua, a lot of the Canaanites were, they were criminal. There were exceptions, right? Uh, Rahab was a good one. The Gibeonites, the Gibeonites weren't so bad. So you get this idea. It's like, what, this is what we're being told. What are we not being told? Imagine if the Philistines had written 1 Samuel, or if the high priest in Jerusalem had written the Acts of the Apostles. So there's this skepticism, suspicion of any authority with its agenda, and especially when it makes claims about God. Now, diversity is great, but this idea that all world religions are equal doesn't actually make sense, partly because they contradict each other. Tolerance has been transformed in our day. The definition has been changed radically. I grew up outside New York City, in New Jersey. Uh, Most of my friends at my school were Jewish. Uh, Quite possibly most of the students in the school were Jewish. I just never noticed at the time. I didn't have a problem with that. I wasn't Jewish. I didn't agree with um, their interpretation. Most of them were atheists and agnostics. Um, But we still had fun together. I mean, we played sports. uh, We talked, played chess, whatever we needed to do. So you tolerate people. That doesn't mean you have to think their ideas are correct. But now that's not enough. Now you have to tolerate ideas. And what that means is all ideas are equal. Every idea gets the blue ribbon, just like every child comes in first place at field day. So every religion's equally true. Yeah, Church of Satan, Church of Christ, <laughs> Baptist Church, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, we're all equal. Well, that's not what tolerance is. If, if everything's equal, I, why, would, why would we be tolerating you? You know, I don't tolerate ice cream because I like ice cream. I love it. I, I tolerate... In a sense, I tolerate those who may be smoking a cigarette. You know, I don't go up and, you know, hit them or anything. Um, I tolerate if there's a Brussels sprout on my plate, I will eat one. Uh, But that's a matter of taste. You don't tolerate something that you love. So if, if if all ideas were true, then there'd be no need to tolerate. But tolerance is properly of people, not of ideas. I like the way uh, G.K. Chesterton put it. There are those who hate Christianity and call their hatred an all-embracing love for all religions. Oh, I like that. 
you know, we, we love everyone, but really? These are the days when the Christian is expected to praise every creed except his own. A Bible burning, what would that do? If Nashville had a Bible burning tomorrow, would it even be in the news? Well, maybe. Would it cause riots all over the world? <laughs> would people light tires and, and push cars upside down and lynch people? I, I don't think so. So I, many of us, I mean, we feel this, there's anti-Christian bias right now. Experts note that the differences among the religions of the world greatly outweigh the similarities. I was uh, privileged to, to have uh, some time in, in graduate work to study the world religions, and I continue to do that every year, studying more and more scriptures. I had a year, for example, studying Buddhism, Indian, Tibetan, Japanese, and Chinese. Now, my professors didn't necessarily believe in religions, nor were they necessarily against religion. But they did emphasize that the differences are a lot greater than the similarities. In our postmodern culture, as mentioned, the media is very affected by this philosophy. Have you seen The Life of Pi? Has anyone seen that or read the book? If you have, could you let me know? It's been out for a few years now, so it's only the people sitting in the front half of the audience who've seen it, which may mean something or may not. But Pi is, he's a Hindu who gets to know God's love through Jesus Christ, but he learns to worship God through Islam. So what are we saying? Well, yeah, they all have, they're all good. And then he has this, there's an incredible shipwreck where he's on a lifeboat with a live tiger. He's on, because a zoo, I wouldn't want to spoil it for you, though I already did. And he survives for months and months and months. It's the most incredible story. When he finally washes up, when finally it's like rescue, and the police are interviewing him, he tells the story, which is an amazing story. It's a story we've read in the whole book. And then the guy, one of the guys says, it's kind of hard to believe. So then Pi says, his name is Pi, he says, okay, um, we had, uh, there's a shipwreck. Uh, most people didn't make it. We were in the lifeboat. We were involved in cannibalism. Cannibals, that's why I'm here. And here you are. And the guy says, mm, I, I like the first story better. And that's kind of how it ends. And I'm left in suspense. This was the same in the movie and in the book. So, so it did happen or it didn't happen? What, was he actually with a man-eating tiger? Or, or was it just cannibalism? What was going on? And you don't know. And the point is, well, you can choose your own ending. You interact. You choose the truth. You choose the ending. Wow. This is our postmodern world. Truth is flexible. Truth is facts. You can get facts from the Internet, right? You can prove anything you want. And if you keep peeling away, there may be nothing left. But of course, as in mathematics, there will always be more wrong answers than there are right answers. This is a weak bridge. Now, this is an illustration I use when I talk about sincerity and religion. Someone says, well... This guy's really sincere, so I hope he makes it to heaven. Well, we can have a great confidence. We can have a strong faith in a weak bridge, or you can have weak faith in a strong bridge. Which would you choose? 
again, as in the issue of belief versus the existence of God, whether you believe in the bridge or not has nothing to do with its actual strength. Sincerity doesn't somehow fortify your religion and make it true. In the U.S., we don't have signs like that. Uh, uh, we were walking in Britain, and I thought, I've got to get that picture. It actually says it's a weak bridge, and it tells you how weak. Okay, got it. So we've got to think. This idea that there are multiple truths as opposed to one truth itself is a claim about reality. And just, just think a little bit here. If someone says there isn't one truth, there are multiple truths, all you've got to do is say, is that true? Ooh, that's good. Is that true? So there are multiple truths? Because if he says that's true, well then, he's kind of contradicting himself. You can't make any absolute truth claim within the postmodern system. When you do that, the system starts to fall apart. If the besetting sin of modernism is pride, think of the 19th century confidence in technology, right? Well, the besetting sin of postmodernity is sloth, a despairing indifference to truth. Like, so what? So truth, not truth, values, not morals, number two. Morals means something is actually right or wrong. Values means that you like something, you value it. Uh, I'm constantly, because I'm a big book buyer and reader, I'm constantly going through books, and some I value and I keep on the shelf, and others I give away, and others I put in the garbage can where I think they belong. <laughs> well, my, my, my opinions... We value, but value has nothing to do with morality. So let's explain this, because moral relativism is the engine that drives postmodernity. I talked with a postmodern thinker who said, I'm feeling so free. I have an insight I want to share with you, Douglas. The insight is that there is no right and wrong. There's no sin. And ever since I accepted that, I've just been at peace with myself. Now, I'll tell you, anyone who thinks that way won't be at peace with him or herself very long because they're going to bump into the rough edges of reality. And we live in a moral universe. Moral relativism is another truth claim. Nietzsche, the most interesting philosopher who ever lived, in my opinion, was the most consistent in his distinction about morality and values. Uh, one of his books is called Beyond Good and Evil. Okay, in this book, he states, and I'm almost quoting him here. I read the whole thing. It's a great book. He said, there are no moral or immoral actions. Nothing's right or wrong. There are only moral interpretations of actions. Now, so someone says that's wrong. Someone says that's right. Yes, that's true. People say those things. But everything is actually neutral. Nothing's right or wrong. And so, no more talk about sin, righteousness, wickedness, right and wrong. We will talk instead of, of values. Now, in our modern culture, we use that word a lot. Like, what's a phrase where you've heard it? Values. Yeah, you value a relationship. If it's 
in the family. It might be family values as opposed to other values. But the implication is, well, yeah, well, you value that. That's your world. That's your truth. I value this. Okay. So you're saying that nothing is right or wrong? Right. That's the influence of Nietzsche, who kind of predicted the 20th century. He said, in the 20th century, we will have a world that is incredibly violent and that goes crazy. It'll be lost in insanity. And I actually think that Nietzsche, who actually himself died of insanity, I think Nietzsche, he kind of figured this out. That God is dead, right. No, he said, God is dead and we have killed him. So there's no right or wrong. So of, there's not, nothing to restrain us from killing each other. And we will go crazy. You can't live by such a, a worldview. Inconsistent beliefs. It's not just um, gender confusion. All kinds of inconsistent beliefs about right and wrong. This affects the, the uh, criminality. It affects the, the language and, and processes of psychiatry and, and psychology. Now, I think we're not such black and white thinkers that we say all behavior is just right or wrong. I mean, brain chemistry is a big deal. Uh, we can be affected, we are affected by environment and by genes, but there's still right and wrong. And if you say, no, nothing's right or wrong, or you can't condemn anyone, you take away all hope of, of actual change. So in postmodernism, morality is brought back to the, down to the level of personal preference. I like the coconut ice cream. How about you? You like raspberry? What's the most popular ice cream in the world? Vanilla is number one. I don't get that. I love vanilla, but I don't know why it's number one. Um, I love that coconut and pistachio. So in, in this kind of a setup, in postmodernism, these are behaviors. Some you may like, some you may not like. But don't you go judging and saying something's right or wrong. Okay, this, is, this, is, uh, this is familiar. The third facet, of course, inclusion, not exclusion. Marginalization, pushing people out, that's really bad. What's good is to include everybody. Christianity says some people won't make it in the end. Christianity is exclusive, so Christianity is bad. And that thinking, wow, did I hear that in my seminary years? Oh, eight years of hearing this over and over. Didn't buy into it, but that's probably because I was very involved in local church, in evangelism, in disciple-making. Apart from that, I'm sure I would have chosen the easy road. I know my, my weaknesses. So how do we exclude people? Through racism, uh, through patriarchy. That's a dirty word in postmodernism. Sexism. Even the male and the female distinction. If that's just a preference or something created by society, uh, well, yeah, there, some people are born not XX or XY. Some people are born with, is it XXY or XYY? I'm, yeah, aberrations take place. But almost 100% of all humans are either XX females or, uh, yeah, XXY or XX. So that distinction between male and female, even though 
gender may exist on a kind of a spectrum. Some people are more at the testosterone end, some more at the estrogen end. But that doesn't mean there aren't two genders, just because there are degrees. Evangelism, of course, is the ultimate exclusion because you're saying that people will miss out on the chance for eternal life. The Bible actually says, and and this encourages me, I hope it encourages you, that God wants everyone to be saved, that God takes no pleasure. The second quote, uh, Ezekiel 18, I'd read Ezekiel before, but this was during my first summer as a Christian. I read Ezekiel, and I I just loved that chapter. Like, God, he takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. Repent and live. What a great chapter. Oh, and even in the New Testament, Jesus says that judgment will be different for some people than others. It's going to depend on what you knew and what you chose to do. And for someone who is relatively innocent, whatever punishment is going to be very light compared to the one who had no excuse. Uh, and I would ask you later, just compare Luke 12, 47, 48 to John 12, 47, 48, and see if you don't agree with that. Well, if exclusion is bad, why do I sometimes get the feeling that I'm being excluded, oppressed, and marginalized because of my Christian beliefs? So exclusion's bad unless we're excluding Christians. Then it's good. <laughs> okay. The last facet, it's the journey that's important, not the destination. Journey language, and that, that's, that's in the church. And I'm not against it because, you know, Jesus said, I am the way. He's the way. He's the path, right? So journey is a biblical notion, but not journey alone. This is a famous ship, right? What do they call her? Yeah, I mean, it's what you think. I don't normally do trick questions, all right. Um, They said even God cannot sink her. They named the Titanic after the race of giants called the Titans, who in Greek mythology challenged Mount Olympus and lost. It's like the Titans tried to storm heaven, and they failed. (laughs) So they they named her the Titanic. So the ship is sinking, you're, you thought your destination was New York, it's actually you know, two miles down. Uh, it's a lot closer than you ever imagined. What would be more important than the destination or the journey? Can you imagine a journey person saying, wow, I'm going up to first class. <laughs> I'm going to help myself to the bar and sit in these comfy chairs. I'm going to smoke a cigar. I'm living the life. So that's the journey. But that's meaningless if the destination is, is at the bottom of the sea. I found this in a newspaper I was going over earlier this year. It was about a high school student and interviewed by the journalist. They asked him, What's, what are you going to major in? He said, I don't know. How about your career? Eh, I don't know. I'm not certain. I'm not certain I want a set career. Maybe I'll skip from job to job. I don't want to commit myself. Is this sounding a little familiar? I look at people tied down to the job, and I wonder if they are really happy. It's probably too late for them to change. I don't want to get like that. He admitted, I spend a lot of time, waste, I waste a lot of time 
watching TV, driving around, visiting friends. To me, this sounds very much like those who embrace postmodernism. I actually knew the guy they interviewed because that was me. This was a few months before I became a Christian. And I, read, I found this newspaper clip, and I thought, wow, how very modern of me. I mean, the me in the 70s is very much like the John Doe, Jane Doe that I'm talking about when I teach on postmodernism. I'm telling you, this has been here a long, long time. And the result is, uh, obviously, uh, lack of direction, lack of value, lack of truth, inclusion, exclusion, good luck, hallelujah. So these are the facets of postmodernism. Can you find more? Sure. But I'll tell you, if you walked out today from this presentation and you just remembered those four things, I promise you you'll be able to use them this week in conversation. You may change someone's life. Truth's not truth. Value's not morals. Inclusion. Journey, destination. Think about that. Every one of these, uh, in a sense, it self-destructs, it's self-refuting, and every one of those is addressed by uh, Jesus Christ. So we have all these strong views. Everyone has an opinion, right? Uh, But it's just wrong-headed. People have not thought things through. Do you recognize the skull? (laughs) Okay. So some strategies, and I can tell you where you can find more material, but I'm just going to go quickly through here. Look, most of the world is not Christian. Or, as I would say, most of the world is not lapsed Methodist. A lot of evangelism, maybe some of what goes under the name of disciple-making, just kind of moving people from one church they used to belong to to a new church that they're going to belong to. Conversations kind of assume that a certain background, but most of the world really has no idea what Christianity is. Even most people in the blue section, uh, they've never read the Bible. They don't know. So if that's the case, then the way we approach people, it's going to be different. There's a need for what I call pre-evangelism. Before jumping into a study series, we've got to make sure people have faith. We've got to make sure that they're going to believe in God or that they even understand that it's inconsistent to say that I have values, but there is no moral. According to the Barna people, these are... Three of the top reasons that young people are rejecting the faith of their parents. Can you see that? Churches antagonistic to science? That's just ludicrous. Exclusive nature of Christianity? Some of them are experiencing that exclusiveness. Of course, Christianity is inclusive. We want everyone to make it. And the church is unfriendly to those who doubt. Too many Christians are oblivious of the climate they live in. So here's one strategy, intentional interaction, reaching out with different kinds of people, people you might not normally spend time with. Part of the way I do it in my, in my uh, daily life, my annual life, because it's about once a year, I'll get into a debate. Now, I don't mean I'm arguing with someone uh, in the airplane seat next to me, not that kind of debate, but I mean, we schedule it and invite people. And we have crowds. This year's debate on the subject of violence in the Quran, audience was Muslim and Christian. Uh, you can probably see my opponent, the Sheikh, 
You can't quite make up my face there, but I'm smiling. It was a great event. You can watch it on YouTube if you want or Vimeo or wherever they put it. But I like to debate religious leaders from other world religions. I like to get personal, respectful, but engaged with prominent atheists and agnostics. People who write books, books that the public reads. And I've had a, a kind of an edge in these various debates I've had in uh, Europe and the Americas because people normally don't know who I am, but I know who they are. Yeah. And I've read their books. And I'll read more getting ready for the debate and try to be respectful. Because the way we're to interact with others, it, it's not a war. It's not the, like the old Restoration Movement fighting style, a debate where you hurl mud and invective. No, it's going to be respectful. Building friendship, having parties, sharing your family. Because most of the world needs pre-evangelism. They need time to kind of get up to speed before you can share the gospel. Number two, we need to be critics of culture, right? Now, it doesn't mean we cannot enjoy uh, movies or music or even country music, but to be culture critics and to listen to the messages that, because this affects all of us, not just the younger generation. Because most global culture is not Christian culture. The majority of people on the planet are Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists. They're not Christians. And if you want to if you want to move away from religion, there are far more atheists on the planet than there are true Christians. Think about that. We should become students of other worldviews. Paul did not pull out the Bible when he spoke to Gentile audiences, like in Acts 14 and 17. Then he pulled out their Bible. That is, he was familiar with and he quoted from their poets, their playwrights, their philosophers. And that requires an investment of time, okay? Strategy three, be church critics. Church critics. Ideally, sit in the back row with your arms crossed. And if the preacher uses a verse out of context, frown at him. No, I'm not, talking, not that kind of critic. But more like the prophets who spoke with passion and clearly loved the people of God. But the prophets didn't hold back. They gave feedback to the king. They got feedback to the priesthood, church critics. There's so many things today that I think turn off the younger generation and even my generation, like poorly prepared messages, hypocrisy. When, when the postmodern people just see materialism, they see us pursuing the American dream, not caring about the needy. This is a, these are huge turnoffs, and this has been addressed in some of the messages we've heard at this conference this week. I would even say shallow and silly uh, religion does a very good job of keeping postmodern people out of church. Things like health and wealth teaching, right? You know, it's all about God blessing us. Uh, signs and wonders teaching, you know, the thrill-seeking. It's all about miracles. Or fear and fascination, end times, prediction and hysteria. Shallow choruses and slogans like Salvation by faith alone. The myth of Christian America and even uh, fundamentalism as for sentiment against science. There are things that push people away. These are the kinds of things that the Barna people have noticed. And 
short, what I'm saying here on this strategy is that we need to police ourselves like the prophets in the Old Testament time. Maybe like the prophets in the New Testament time. I don't know. But being reflective, thinking, that's really a big deal. Because those who are outside of our frame of reference, they're doing that. We need to be in touch. Now, I'm happy that because postmodernism is, is not a, a necessarily a coherent philosophy, it's a methodology of mood, there are many things that we can actually embrace. If you embrace everything, then your church will basically uh, circle the drain and it'll disappear as in being a true church. Uh, but it doesn't mean that everything that postmodern thinkers throw out is wrong. We have things in common like this. We're suspicious too. They're suspicious of the system. Look at how Jesus spoke of the system. King Herod, or the way he spoke to the religious leaders. The Bible affirms ecology, right? Dominion, not raping the planet, but caring for it. Christianity, I mean, Jesus was all about affirming the marginalized, the poor, the women, uh, foreigners, children, uh, those terribly disabled, Uh, There's respect. Diversity is a Christian theme. I mean, Christians, in our faith, you you don't have to live in one part of the world or ride a camel or shave your head and go into some monastery. Christianity works anywhere on the planet. It works anywhere. I mean, the only slight difficulty would be baptism at the poles, but normally I think they figure out a way to do the baptisms. In Scandinavia, we just broke the ice. Christianity will work anywhere on the planet. Everyone's welcome. And you have this great vision and revelation of this uh, immense multitude. No one can count. A a multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation. Wow. Diversity. And to emphasize that we too are fellow seekers. This is a turnoff getting into an argument with someone, saying, come to our church. Well, why should I go to your church? Because we've got it right. We've been seeking. We're the restoration movement. We've restored the truth. Come and join us, and you can be right too. Okay. Um, how about a different approach? Here's some things that we're focusing on. We're just, you know, flesh and blood like anyone else. It's definitely not perfect. You'll see things. You'll see us falling down not even following what we say we should do. However, we're really trying, and we're learning some incredible things. It's an adventure. It's quite a journey. Come be with us, and we can seek together. So we can use the journey language, but of course, any journey is better that actually takes you where you would like to go, as opposed to getting lost in a bad neighborhood or drowning um, in April. We, too, are fellow seekers. We have much in common with them, Let's show respect. 1 Peter 3, that whole passage. And then last, scriptural sensitivity, to have a sense of nuance and balance. That, that in the Bible, not everything is black and white. Some things we have to be kind of open about. It's not necessarily in the Bible uh, to give us a clear yes or no. But we also need to respect the, what well, I call it the topography of the Bible. Some things are really big. Some commands are really important. Others are less important. Matthew 23, 23. Sometimes I hear Christians saying, all commands are equally important. 
I think what they mean is that obedience is important, but all commands are equally important. Okay, Damien is drowning in the lake. I could save him and show love to, you know, my neighbor. Or I could spend an extra five minutes uh, studying the book of Revelation in my quiet time. Hmm. No, I think I'll just do Revelation and let him drown, right? You'd say, no, of course, you have to prioritize. Some things are more important than others. Some sins are worse than others. They're not all equal. There's a topography in the Bible. And if we can understand that, we can avoid the two extremes. The extremes of a far-right religion where everything is supposed to be black and white. There's no uncertainty. And then the far left, where everything is gray. You know, you make your own truth. who's, Who's to say? The truth is, some things are kind of gray. Some things are clearly black and white. And those are non-negotiable. It's a great story. The, the story of the Bible. And postmodern people love stories. We can help them to locate themselves in the story. The story of Abraham from Ur towards the promised land or even the pilgrim. Like think of uh, Pro- Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan. The biblical story is anchored in history, which means it's not just mythological it's history is vital and that's one reason I love to go to Israel almost every year because it helps people to see that this is the real world sometimes I'm afraid we have been guilty of proof texting now proof texting is when you want to prove prove the Bible's true okay how do you know it's true well look in 2 Timothy 3 16 says it's inspired Okay, so that's an example of proof texting. You're you're using one verse to prove your point. Of course, in that case, that doesn't work at all because you're using the Bible to prove the Bible. That's that's circular. But it would be like an evangelical saying, all you have to do to be saved is to have faith, John 3.16. That's proof texting. That's pulling one verse out, ignoring the context. Because John 3 doesn't just say believe. It says repent, Right? That's in 321. Um, and, and, and you've got to be born of water and spirit. That's in 3.5. And it's just as wrong to say, well, all you've got to do is be baptized, verse 5, as all you've got to do is believe, verse 16. So proof texting is easier, of course, because then you only need to know a few dozen verses in the Bible. But I think this could be bewildering, especially to someone with a short attention span, which you're now reinforcing, like changing the TV channel every two minutes. Okay, that's in John. Now let's flip over here to 2 Timothy. See? Okay, now put your finger there. Let's go back to Isaiah. Okay, now let's go over here to Psalms. And wow, that's how you create truth. You just kind of jump around and it's like some sous chef who knows where all the ingredients are. A little bit of that, a little bit of this. Very creative, but is it true, right? How we use the Bible is important. Don't just give in to the short attention span. Take time to flesh out the text and to trust the word. To unpack the passage. Unpack is another postmodern word. It's a good one. And I give you an example of a verse that you would normally not want to talk about with someone who is critical of the church. Can you see why? But I want to leave you with a thought of how, how we can actually use even the challenging passages, uh, present them in love and balance and context 
and they can be attractive. It seems offensive at first, so let's break it down. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. Well, notice the way, the way, Jesus is the way. The way is not just some system or some rule book. It's a person. To some extent, the way is Christ. Now, is Jesus Christ the gospel? Mm, I, I probably wouldn't put it that way. That's oversimplifying. But Christianity is more of a person than it is some kind of religion or system. And people tend to be less suspicious of Jesus than they are of, of the system. The way was the term the church used for itself. And that makes sense because the Bible is not so much about rules as about relationship with God, with each other. Or you could put it this way. The Bible is destinational. It's relational, and the journey is key, but it's also destinational. There's a way, but it's personal. It's personal. Think of this. Journey, John 10. Destination, John 14. Jesus is the truth. He's not saying, I am doctrinal truth. I am the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of conversion, and the doctrine of creation. Although those are very important, here Jesus shows the truth is a person. He is the truth. The truth actually becomes flesh, the central miracle of Christianity. And then Jesus says, I am the life. Not selfish life, like this is the high life, but a shared and selfless life. Many people spend a lot of time in the virtual world. Let's invite them to the real world, to, to God's world. Faith in Christ works. There's that, that psalm, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's, that's very, I find that very attractive. Taste and see. You're not asking me to do something or give any money. No, no, no. Just come and see. Actually, that's a, a, it's a mini theme in the Gospel of John. Come and see, come and see, come and see. You'll see those words taste. Okay, fine. I'll taste it. Maybe I'll like it. Maybe I'll value it. Yeah. What we're hoping is that there'll be a shift from value to appreciation of the truth. And it's time for the church to wake up. It's time for the church to wake up. And so I give you a little bit of a charge. First, an encouragement again from Chesterton, who, who encourages us. It's not bigotry. It's not bigotry to, to be certain we're right. But it is bigotry to be unable to imagine how we might possibly have gone wrong. So Douglas is not saying the Bible's all gray, who's to say, you know, just hold weak convictions. Not at all. Uh, I mean, I hope you think you're right. I, I mean, unless you're seeking, I hope you think you're on the right track. But to say it's impossible that I'm self-deceived, considering the human capacity for self-deception, to say why well, I couldn't be wrong on anything... That's the, that's the thing we should annihilate. That's what hurts us. We don't, after all, claim total knowledge, but just adequate knowledge. Whatever basic knowledge is necessary to know God. The many things of which we are ignorant. That's humble. Sometimes, however, postmoderns disrespect other views of reality whenever they make a truth claim. So that tells me we need to approach the millennial generation with humility and with excellent preparation, with love. 
I'd like to open it up for a couple of questions because we have a few minutes remaining. And um, if you came in late, there's still a few copies of the free books for you. Uh, Because I know I spoke quickly, but the book is written really slowly. I mean, you you read the book and take all the time you want, right? Okay. So progressive Christianity riding the postmodern wave. This wave has affects your youth group, your campus ministry, your older people. It affects us in uh, the entertainment that we listen to, uh, vacations, if you take vacations. It affects school. It affects university. It affects the academy. It affects everything. So I'm welcoming any comment or question. Please. Okay, so our brother is encouraging us that if you actually study history, you'll see that Christianity is a good guy. I mean, authentic Christianity. Paganism is incredibly violent. Uh, We tend to glorify the past. I don't know. You say, how do we communicate that to postmoderns without being eggheads? Well, actually, without being sort of chauvinistic, I guess is a better word. In terms of nationalism or in terms of gender? Well, I think it, it, it maybe has to do with how much we share. Too much will, will make, make it seem like we're eggheads. We're not very open. And, and also sharing when we have, haven't actually studied the history ourselves. If you, if you get a point from a book, but you've never actually studied the history, then you're stumped if they challenge you. What's your source or why do you say that? So we should always be saying a little bit less than we know, maybe a lot less than we know. But in ancient culture, uh, human sacrifice was incredibly common. And in some contexts, cannibalism. But uh, human sacrifice is common. Uh, I think you say, let's bring back the glorious Stone Age. You know, let's let's go back a few thousand years. And are, are you crazy? Yes, Christian missionaries, we have to own something. Some in being agents of the West, representing Western culture, represented some values that are not so valuable, that are bad. I'm not sure, though, that missionaries on the whole did more harm than good. I think there was a lot of good that's done. And I could recommend a book I read this year called Protestants by Alec Reary, R-Y-R-I-E. I was in a, I was in an airline lounge in Amsterdam a few months ago, the guy sitting next to me is reading this book on the history of Protestantism. It had just come out. And within two minutes, I had ordered it from Amazon. And I said, I'm looking forward to it. We've been in touch since then, but it's really good. That would be a good thing for you to read. R-Y-R-I-E, Ryrie or Riri. Okay? So not to share too much, but we do need to educate ourselves. I don't think people mind some history, but it's more the, the attitude that it comes with. And um, short, and I'll, um, I'll repeat it if, if we need it for the volume. How do we encourage the mentality of, that, uh, of being comfortable asking questions, or do you mean being comfortable being asked questions? We have, we have more in common than we realize sometimes with our critics. I, I thought the, the things that Thomas Rayner said last night were, were quite on track in that way. I teach um, a lot of Christian apologetics all around the planet, and one presentation I like to do is, is on doubt, why doubt is good. Doubt is good. Yeah, there's good doubt, there's bad doubt, but, you know, like there are two kinds of cholesterol, you know, <laughs> but, 
doubt. I mean, doubt if you just, you just refuse to be humble. That's not good. But doubt, because you're honest, that can lead to seeking the truth, and that's a good thing. So some things that sound bad, we need to kind of grab those things back and say, no, actually, that's good. Doubt could be good. Uncertainty could be a virtue. I mean, if you weren't sure which wire to cut to defuse the bomb, it might be better to be uncertain and ask someone else than just make and, you know, actualize yourself. <laughs> okay. Okay, one more. This will probably be the last one. I'm sorry. Um, please, right So ahead. modernism is, hey, we have the answer in our... Would I, I, would you, would I say about pre-modern? Would you say you were pre-modernist? Pre-modernist, which would mean... There is no such thing. That would mean before the uh, enlightenment, before exactly the... Exactly right. You go back so am I, a, am I medieval? Yes. I've been called many things. <laughs> would you call yourself medieval? I don't think so, because it, it, medieval culture, state and church, uh, life and certainty are all so closely packed, yeah. um, I would go crazy. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what I am. I don't mind you labeling me if you need to no, uh, for I, your notes. I label for me because I listen to this stuff all the time. Okay, medieval. my friends. Medieval. Do you have it? Modernism, science, technology is going to rescue us. Things are getting better and better. What a great century the 20th century will be. Postmodernism looks at the 20th century and said, well, that stunk. And the disillusionment is especially bubbling up in the 60s and 70s with the sexual revolutions, but it just keeps on coming. And so we have to live and, and provide answers for those in postmodern culture. We looked at a few facets of it about truth and values and so forth. And I gave you a few strategies, but really the work is for you to do. It's on you uh, to pursue this. Um, I can be a resource, my website, or these books can be resources, but if you're motivated, this will change the kind of people we reach out to, and I think even our effectiveness with even our own children. God bless you all. Thanks for coming. That message was from the Strength and Weakness Ministries track called Cultural Issues in Disciple Making at the National Disciple Making Forum. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources like this podcast at discipleship.org. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.